Well, the title of tonight's sermon is The Blessed Man, The Blessed Man. And of course, we get that from the portion in Psalm 1 that we'll be looking at tonight. We'll be focused on verses 1 through 3. You can start turning there if you want to. But when I was thinking about Psalm 1 or even this series of insights or encouragements from the Psalms, this is a Psalm that I've known for a long time. It's one of the first Psalms that I memorized or was taught both in song and just being taught it through memorization. But the first verse, of course, starts off by saying, blessed is the man, and then goes on to describe that man. So, hence, that's our title, the blessed man. And it's interesting that the first word used in the first psalm is blessed. And as I was thinking about that word, it's a common word. It's really common in popular culture real recently here, where you can find hashtag blessed just about everywhere. It seems as though there's a complete misunderstanding even about what it means, but it's come to be associated with good fortune or something along those lines. And so on social media, it's very common for somebody to make a post about something that is they view as good luck that has occurred to them or good fortune that has occurred to them. And then throw a hashtag blessed after that in terms of their way of presenting that to those in their lives. And so it's used as a means of describing, again, some a sense of being happy or a satisfying present existence or mental state. Often when people are using it on social media, though it's just bragging in disguise or promoting a sense among others of how great your life is. It ranges, as I was looking and researching some of that, Some people who are using it are using it with good intentions, but many others, it becomes absurd. You know, like the one example that I came across is, you know, gal on social media, you know, with, in her estimation, a flattering view of of her rear end in a bikini, and then hashtag blessed. Or somebody who has won won a prize of some kind putting hashtag blessed. Or other examples of that would be some accomplishment in the, on the part of you got something that you were looking for. I saw an example where a gal was showing a really big diamond ring, hashtag blessed. And associating this sense of what God's blessing is all about or what really being blessed is all about, reducing it to just good fortune, good luck, being happy with your present lot in life or the circumstances that are in front of you. And that shouldn't surprise us. As we watch somebody who's thinking with a natural mindset reducing something that ultimately comes from God's word down to just something associated with anything that they, they think from a worldly perspective should make them happy or something that they should be proud of or something that they should feel like, I got a good deck of cards dealt to me, hashtag blessed. And I can just throw that on to the end of it. And from a human viewpoint, the world defines being blessed as entailing something much differently than what God in his word or through divine viewpoint describes or defines blessed to be. From a human perspective, it focuses on the physical realm and physical, financial, relational, or emotional prosperity attributed to a source of origin or origin that's other than God 
there's never, when you look at those things from a human perspective, it's never with a sense of giving credit to God for any of it or attributed him as the source of some even physical prosperity in your life. But by reducing it, the world naturally focuses on that physical or that temporal realm, those things that are here today and gone tomorrow. That's naturally the focus of what a blessed life would be from the world's perspective. And it's expressed again in those terms of temporal happiness. I'm presently feeling very happy. Well, what is driving that? Well, a sense of prosperity, a sense of good luck or good fortune. And as I feel prosperous or I feel like uh, things are going really really well right now compared to my neighbors or compared to the others that I have in my life, I can have that be my sense of being blessed in that moment. But from a divine perspective, the divine focus of being blessed is, of course, centered on the spiritual realm. Blessing from a divine perspective, it attributes that blessing directly to God's grace. It, en- it emphasizes the benefit of intimately relating to Him. And it's expressed in terms of lasting or eternal happiness, not something that is temporal or fleeting or associated with the physical realm, but the eternal realm. So let's take a look at Psalm 1 in these first few verses here to see how Psalm 1 describes, and God, I guess, ultimately through Psalm 1, describes and defines the blessed man. So the blessed man. So let's read these first three verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Lord willing, that will be the focus of our content tonight as we seek to get a better picture of what the Bible holds up as defining the blessed man. Now, blessed as defined by this Hebrew word behind the, what's translated as blessed here in our English Bible, it describes one who is happy or highly favored by divine grace. The focus of it is divine grace, the recipient of divine favor or divine grace, again focusing on what God does for man, which is always the proper focus of the Bible. A proper understanding of the emphasis of the Bible is always on what God has done for an undeserving man, never on what man can do for God, so a biblical definition of this word blessed focuses on this grace of God, this favor of God that's poured out on undeserving man, which results in a sense of eternal happiness or spiritual well-being on the part of that man. So then we look at this passage. We're going to focus our our attention on what it says here, but what characterizes the blessed man's life. So blessed is the man, but now there's a lot given here as to what characterizes the life of the blessed man. So if there is such a thing, and there is, every man whose life is characterized by these things, and then we're going to see in contrast is not characterized by these other things, that person by definition in that moment, practically and presently, is a blessed man. That could describe you tonight. You could be presently and practically described as a blessed man or a blessed 
woman. But how is it characterized here in God's word? Well, I want to skip really to verse 2 and then we'll come back to the rest of verse 1 because if you're going to follow the train of thought, the train of thought is blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. We'll start with the positive, not the negative. The negative is the antithesis of the positive. But blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on God's law day and night. If we were going to sort of paraphrase verse 2 there a little bit. That's the blessed man. If we want to summarize this to a nutshell that we can take away, the takeaway from these three verses is simply that. The blessed man is equal to or equivalent to the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates in his law day and night. And we'll break that down a little bit more. But let's start with, you could say, what is his formula for success. If we're going to talk about what characterizes the blessed man's life, what is his formula for success or for being blessed? Well, the first part there of verse 2 is he delights in the law of the Lord. Now, again, that's me paraphrasing that a little bit to make it make sense grammatically. The blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And delights carries the idea of one source of joy or satisfaction. So the blessed man's source of joy or satisfaction is the law of the Lord, which refers to God's word or God's truth or God's revelation to man. Now the law could be used to refer to, and it's, it's used at times to refer to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, but it also can be used more generically to refer to the scriptures in general. But in this context, it's God's truth, it's God's revelation is more the focus of the psalmist here. So, the one who delights or finds his source of joy and satisfaction in God's truth or God's word. So, the blessed man finds satisfaction in God's word. And if you are familiar with this verse, and, and I was, Jeremiah 15, verse 16, and this isn't the whole verse, but it says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The blessed man is the one who's finding his joy and rejoicing in God's word. Now, it wasn't enough to just know God's word for Jeremiah. It was digesting God's word. I found his word as it was revealed to me. I had access to God's truth, but that I didn't just take it in in an intellectual kind of a way, in an academic kind of a way. I was confronted by God's truth and I digested it. I took a bite out of it. I, that's the expression, taste and see that the Lord is good. I appropriated practically and personally to my own life God's truth. I wasn't just vaguely aware of God's truth. I became aware of God's truth and then I allowed it to make changes in my thinking to be applied to my own life. That's the idea that is being communicated there. And what was the result of that? The result of that, it was brought great joy to my heart. Joy and rejoicing. So that's the idea of delights. The blessed man, how is he characterized? The first part of it is he's characterized by Finding joy in God's truth. And as you think about what does that mean on a more practical level, on a more practical level, I would, I would submit that the focus here is not so much on even finding joy in God's truth, but seeking after Him. 
You're never going to seek after God's truth if you're not, first of all, interested in Him and seeking after Him. When you get right down to it and you really boil it down to His essence, the one who is presently delighting in the law of the Lord, that person described now as the blessed man, that person in that moment has been convinced that God is good, that God is real, that God is the ultimate source of truth. That person has developed in that, in that moment anyway, an interest in, the, in a relationship with the God of the universe such that he's convinced that what God then has to say is worthwhile and it's worth meditating in, which we'll see next. I find my joy in God's truth. Why? Because I find my joy in God himself. That's the underlying idea here. The blessed man is the one who finds his joy in God and then by virtue of that, God's truth as an extension of that underlying delight that he's taking in that personal relationship with God. You know, if you're not careful, you read through the Bible and you miss out on that intimacy, that personal relationship that's being communicated regardless of whether you're looking at an Old Testament example or illustration or looking at a New Testament example. You forget that that's ultimately the focus of this. Do you want to live life in a manner that includes him, operates in complete dependence upon him, Or are you going to live life in a way that excludes him and tries to do things on your own apart from him? One is identified with having a life that is purposeful, I mean, has purpose to it. One that's identified with joy, contentment, peace, direction, fulfillment, and one that's empty one that is lifeless, one that is the equivalent of practical death being apart from him. But that's ultimately always what it comes back to. So then the natural question to ask ourselves as we're meditating on this first principle here, the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord by delighting in God himself. So then where are you searching for your joy? If the psalmist says that Blessing and joy, happiness, that's another translation of that word blessed there, involves a sense of happiness. If that's connected to knowing God and knowing His Word, where are you searching for your happiness? You know, from a young age, the young kids in our church learn a song that says, Happiness is to know the Savior. Living a life within his favor. You think about happiness, there is no such thing as joy or feeling like I'm a blessed man or have a blessed life apart from a right relationship with him, an intimate personal relationship with him. So where are you searching for your joy? Do you notice how elusive joy and peace rest are apart from him? Apart from intimate fellowship with him, where is the joy in your life? Where is the purpose? Where is the peace that passes all understanding? Where is the comfort? Where is the hope? It's elusive. It can't be found. It can't be found anywhere apart from this right 
close, intimate relationship with him, which is what is being communicated there with the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. Now we move on. What's the second characteristic of the blessed man? The blessed man meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. Meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. And the focus here is a practical mental occupation with God's word. To meditate is to think deeply about or carefully consider something. What I found fascinating is that this word meditates, it literally described this idea of muttering something quietly to yourself. The blessed man mutters quietly to himself about God's truth. That would be a way to paraphrase that. Imagine going through your day, being reflecting on and kind of talking to yourself about God's truth. Same thing, though. That's never going to happen apart from first having that relational desire to live life with God, to rightly relate to God, to have him be a part of your thinking and a part of your day-to-day moment-by-moment decision-making or the life that you're living. As you're seeking to have that relationship with him and closeness with him, you're going about, one, being interested in his truth, found in his word. As you reflect on his truths, principles from God's word, things that you know about him, promises he's made to you, you go about muttering those to yourself. Now let's talk about some of the other mutterings that are going on in your life. Eric refers to them as dark mutterings. He's not, he's not here. The dark mutterings of our lives, you know, the dark mutterings of our lives don't make us blessed. But as we go about muttering to ourselves, f- focusing on and being reminded and meditating about God's truths, being reminded about or thinking about or repeating or repeating to ourselves or telling ourselves even about what God has promised us, those things result in us being blessed. The blessed man does that. And so I think that's just a funny way to think about this idea of meditating on the law of the Lord. The idea is to be mentally occupied with God's truth. Now, again, you're not mentally occupied with God's truth while not being occupied with him. It starts with being occupied with him. It starts again with being absolutely blown away by him. And as I think about who he is and what I mean to him, as I think about his character and his goodness and his provision for me, it causes me to then be occupied with or interested in his truth, his direction, his plan, which is all found in his word. It drives me back to the word of God. But again, it always comes back to that relationship with him first and foremost. Intimate fellowship with God is in view here. You can see that in 1 John 2.24. Let's get some page turning. Go ahead and turn there. Keep a finger here if you want to come back to this. Most of you have it memorized, so we're not going to be looking at anything here tonight you don't already know as far as the words themselves, but just expanding on what some of them mean. But 1 John 2.24, we covered this not too terribly long ago in our study of 1 John. But this idea that meditating on the law of the Lord or having this focus or fixation on God's word, it's a byproduct or closely associated with intimate fellowship with God. And that's part of what 
defines or characterizes the blessed man is that he's occupied with Jesus Christ in the context of the New Testament, but God in general, and that he is living life in close union with or dependence on having that intimate fellowship with God. But it says this, therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What are we talking about? God's truth. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, what are we talking about? God's word. If God's word abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Meaning, you can't be properly abiding in God's word without abiding or experiencing that intimate fellowship with the Son and the Father at the same time. A byproduct of fellowship is that at the same time you'll be abiding in God's truth and abiding in God's word. As you're experiencing and you're walking by means of or being led by the Spirit of God, as you're experiencing that intimate relationship with God, God's Spirit is, again, never going to direct you in a way that's inconsistent with God's truth or God's Word. He's never going to lead you in a way where you have no interest in the things of faith. He's never going to guide you in a path that takes a disinterested approach to God's Word or the Bible. The Spirit of God is going to direct you in a way where you have an intense desire to know more about God, to grow in your faith, to grow in your understanding. Now, as He leads and directs and enables and illuminates your thinking, God's truth is going to become more and more precious to you, not less precious to you. It's never a sign of spiritual maturity or growth or a Spirit-led, Spirit-directed, Spirit-enabled life that you have no interest in God's Word. Or that you make time for everything else in your life other than what God wants to communicate to you, again, through the only revelation he ever made to mankind in his, in his written word, or at least that we have. I, sh- I guess I shouldn't say that dogmatically. So that's the idea from First John is there's this aspect in the blessed man is the one who's meditating on the law of the Lord, but to do that is a picture of this intimate fellowship that the man of faith is supposed to have with the God of the universe who loves him desperately, sees him as a child, and wants to provide everything he needs to thrive spiritually in in this life and in eternity. So then as you carry that train of thought a little bit, one's present manner of thinking. So if this describes your mindset, this desire of the blessed man to meditate on the law of the Lord by meditating on him, if that describes a mindset, then your present way of thinking, it directly impacts your present way of living. Your present manner of thinking affects or impacts your present manner of living. So turn to Joshua 1.8. I just want to show you that God, as he has a hold of our thinking, it results in transformed and changes in our lives where he changes us. He uses that interest in him and the impact of his word in our thinking to bring about lives or manner of living that is consistent with his will, his plan, his purpose, and his word. So Joshua 1.8. You see a correlation here with a reference to the book of the law. Here we have the one who is blessed, the blessed man, he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Joshua says, this book of the law in verse 8 of chapter 1 shall not depart from your mouth. That sounds like meditating or fixating on something, to focus on something, to, to think deeply about something, to carefully consider something. 
It shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it, how often? Day and night. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? That with what objective in mind? That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. We saw that several times in Deuteronomy that God says, the result of focusing on me and trusting me, trusting that I know best, letting me lead and direct in your lives, the result of that is that your life will transpire in a way that would bring me glory. I didn't give you this truth for you to just ignore it, but I also didn't give you this truth so that you would have this proud attitude that says, I can do this apart from you. I presented you my truth so that you would see that apart from me, you're hopeless and helpless, both in terms of justification, but also in terms of living a life of faith. And so you would operate in dependence on me to help you and assist you and work with you so that as your thoughts are on me, your thinking is focused on me, and as my word is in your heart, that then what would flow from your life would be a prosperous way. Because it says that you would do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So what does spiritual success look like in the context of the man of faith? Well, it looks like letting God make changes in our lives and work in our lives Not because we're producing changes in our lives, but because he's faithful to transform us as we focus on him. You could see that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And what? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, as you're thinking about that renewing of your mind, what is that another reference back to? Having your mind refreshed by God's truth. What is that connected to? Having a right, intimate, personal walk of faith with the Lord. Intimate fellowship with Him. It all comes back to that. That's how you track it backwards. So the question is, are you occupied with him? If he meditates, if the blessed man, one of the things that characterizes him, he meditates in the law of the Lord day and night by meditating on the Lord himself day and night, then the question is, are you occupied with him? Are you focused on him? Are you thinking deeply or carefully considering him? Is that causing you to think carefully about his word or carefully consider his word? What are you fixed on? What are you focused on? Are you going through life quietly muttering his truth to yourself, his promises to yourself, having that be the thing that is consuming your thinking? Now, both of these activities of the blessed man or these descriptions of the blessed man, both of these involve a positive volitional decision to associate intimately with him. God never forces you to live life as he intended. But the blessed man, the one whose life is presently, the one who is presently described as a blessed man or woman, that person presently and practically are, are allowing these things to be true in their lives. That they have a delight in the law of the Lord, which again, a delight in Him, and they're meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. You cannot experience the blessed or highly favored life apart from Him. This is why God's word reminds the believer to draw near to him, not to distance himself from God. God's reminder to us is that by 
And it's because he knows that by default, we distance ourselves from him. So his repeated reminder to us is, come closer, come a little closer. Lean in here. Step toward me. Move in this direction. You know, a walk of faith involves movement. Movement away from the world and toward God. Away from self-dependence and toward dependence on Him. It's, it's always an alternative. Lean not on your own understanding. That's the alternative to trust in the Lord with all your heart. It, it involves having movement, though. Faith is to trust God, to move toward God, to move with God, to walk with God, to depend on God in an intimate, personal, and impersonal way. So that's what we have as our definition, our working definition of the blessed man. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord and meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. Now, as opposed to what? This is what brings us back to the first part or the second part of verse 1. How is the alternative manner of living described? So if the blessed man's life is characterized by those two things, delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating in the law of the Lord day and night, what is the alternative? Well, it's if, in a sense, what we were talking about is the blessed man's life is characterized by associating himself intimately with God, choosing to be associated closely with God. Well, then the alternative of that, or the opposite of that, is disassociation with, from God. Or, another way you could say that is, association with the, the things that are opposed to God. So if the blessed man is associating himself intimately with God, if that's a way of thinking about how his life is characterized, the opposite of that is to associate yourself with the opposition or to disassociate or distance yourself from God. And this is described in three ways. So the blessed man described in two ways, but at the same time, there's three things that he's avoiding. The blessed man avoids these three things. Now, they wouldn't be warned against if they weren't real and present dangers. I, I had that come to mind as I was reading those. God wouldn't take the time to warn you against these things if these weren't real dangers. Now, they are described as walking, standing, and sitting in the wrong places. Now, wrong places always comes back to wrong thinking. So walking with the wrong thinking, standing with the wrong thinking, and sitting with the wrong thinking, and then it leads to the practical ramifications of that, which is the walking, standing, and sitting, the behavior itself. But it always ties back to the wrong, the wrong thinking. So that's a way to summarize here what the alternative is to being the one that is presently the blessed man who is doing or living life, a manner of living that is what God would want. So it starts with, these ever-increasing, this ever-increasing steps, if you will, of closer intimacy or friendliness with the world. So it's interesting how it's presented here because each one of them presents one step closer to friendship with the world or our closeness to the world. So we'll see that here. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly is the first one. So the blessed man, in addition to doing these two things or having these two things characterize his life, the delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating in the law of the Lord, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who walks not in the counsel of God. It refers to a manner of living guided by the advice of those who are without God. So walking in the counsel, walking refers to a manner of living, so living in a way that is guided by the advice of the ungodly. That's what ungodly means, without God. 
So those without God are becoming your source of direction. God says, I want to be your source of direction. I want to be your source of truth. And the one who is not presently experiencing life as, that would be characterized as the blessed man, that person who practically right now or experientially is not focused on the Lord, is not interested in his word, well, the alternative of that is to be sucked into this mindset or this way of thinking where you're putting this higher value on the guidance or advice of those without God instead of God himself. And that's mankind's default. That's the kind of thinking that the believer was rescued out of, in a sense, given wired for sound. As we make a New Testament application of this, the believer was indwelt with the Holy Spirit the moment of salvation. And the moment of salvation now had the capacity for understanding truths in a way that previously would have been foreign to him. Understanding things, digesting things, apply, even applying things in a way that was otherwise impossible. And so, you thinking about this person who has had the opportunity through faith in God's provision for him, even in the Old Testament, that we have a different application of God's Spirit at work. But in the Old Testament, he says the same opportunity, the opportunity to trust God, depend on God, and experience victory. But if you're not going to do those things, then you're going to end up living a lie, living in a way that is incompatible or inconsistent with your identity. So if your identity, because of your faith at a point in time in God's solution or provision for your sinfulness, if that is what justified you before God and brought you into a right standing with Him such that you would be described as His child, if that occurred, then from that moment on, you were identified with Him. And that could never be separated or broken in any way, just as that could never be lost Salvation, that salvation could never be lost. It could never, that judicial determination could never be undone. It was finalized in a permanent way. But, but was it possible then to still carry on living as if you were identified with the world that you had been saved out of or the mindset or the way of thinking that you had been saved out of? Well, yeah. We refer to that as carnality, especially in the New Testament being a child of God, but living under the influence of the world, living under the influence of the sin nature. So is it possible? Yeah. But it ought not to be that way because you were given freedom from that kind of existence where you used to, by default, put a higher value on the advice of men in the world than you did God. So to be without God is to exclude him from your consideration as we talk about intimacy of fellowship. To be out of fellowship with God is to be excluding him presently from your thinking. And so that describes the person who's walking presently in the counsel of the ungodly instead of walking as directed by God himself. This is the exact opposite of trusting the Lord to direct your paths, walking in the counsel of the ungodly. So then the question becomes, as you're going about your day, the application to us is, are you getting your directions for life? Are you getting them from God's word or from God, his influence in your life? Or are you getting them from those that don't even know God? It's funny. As you think about what is informing my thinking, what, what am I basing this attitude that I presently have on? Where, where am I getting this from? 
This thing that I'm proclaiming even in this moment, where is that coming from? Is it coming from God's word? Does it represent divine viewpoint? Or is it just more of the thinking of the world? Sometimes we have a way of having our lives be characterized by the advice and the influence of the world and we are too naive to even know better. We're too deceived to even recognize that the world's influence on us can take a lot of different forms. It can take the form of very good things. It can take the form of even moral things. It could take the form of things that are not even overtly sinful. But yet, we're getting our perspective and we're having our priorities shaped and shifted by, ultimately, those in the world that don't even know the Lord. And we say, what got me all fired up about this? Well, I heard, I heard something from someone. Okay, who was that someone? Well, they're a reliable source. Says who? The question I ask is, is, is that source of information God's word? Well, no. Is the human being that's presenting that information, are they even saved? Well, we didn't get that far in the conversation. I like what they're saying, though, about this other thing. We'll, we'll, we'll back the truck up, friends. Before I'm going to put a lot of stock or a lot of value in some information or what somebody has to tell me about something, shouldn't the first question be, is this coming from God's word or is the person communicating this truth? Are they even a believer? Could it, could it even be possible for them to be speaking from a perspective of divine inspiration in, or in terms of influence, not inspiration, influence? And there's many, many examples of it. It could be on the job. It could be in, in your hobbies or, or some of the even sports that you're interested in or it could have to do with relationships that you have with people where there's a lot of, you're being influenced in a lot of different ways by a lot of conversations that you're having. The question just comes back to, is this advice, does this actually represent the counsel of the ungodly? I don't know. I don't think we give that enough questioning. We don't question that enough sometimes. Now, the second description of the opposition or the alternative manner of living is to have somebody who is standing in the path of sinners. The blessed man doesn't stand in the path of sinners. The one who is presently blessed is not standing in the path of sinners. So this focus on sinners, it shifts the focus from a way of thinking or counsel. So counsel was talking about a way of thinking to a way of living. The, the greater focus here is on a lifestyle than it is a manner of thinking or advice from the ungodly or those without God. So to stand in that path is to participate in or maintain proximity with that manner of living. And even closeness with the world can cause separation from God. Just being world adjacent. Just letting yourself get sucked in closer than you ought to be instead of separating from yourself from the world and saying we're set apart, we're called to be distinct from the world. Where our citizenship is in another place, it's in heaven, where others can see that we're clearly not from here. We're in this world, but we're not of this world, that they can see that eternal perspective on our part. Well, the one who's not thinking straight stands right in that path. They get real close to it. They either get into it in a sense of participation or they get real close to it. 
So you see James talk about even that, the idea of the danger of the closeness. In James 4.4 4, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now there's an aspect to friendship of participation very often, but it doesn't have to be that. Just going along with it, being a part of it, being associated with it, has a tainting effect on the man or woman of faith. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God because it's an idea of what is my priority? What is my focus? What is my objective? If it's on advancing the things that the world says are important, then that's diametrically opposed to the things that God says are are important. So in that moment, not positionally, but practically, I've made myself a part of the opposition instead of being a part of the Lord's army. So do you really believe that you can stand amongst sinners without being drawn into the muck and the mire? Have you convinced yourself that that's possible? I certainly tried many times in my life. Well, I won't go all the way in. I'll just, but I can still kind of be a part of this. I don't have to completely separate myself from this. Too often, of course, if you're spending time around the muck and the mire, it gets sprayed up on you. Next thing you know, you're diving headfirst into it. Now, the third description of the alternative life, not the life that's characterized as the blessed man's life, but the alternative is to sit in the seat of the scornful. So we've had walking, then standing. So walking involves that you're passing by, there's movement involved. Standing, now you've stopped. Now you're right in the path of the sinners, right either participating in it or being right amongst it or surrounded by it. Now you're sitting in the seat of the scornful. And the scornful make light of God's laws and ridicule that which is sacred. They actively seek through their mockery to express disdain for right living. They seek to belittle and undermine those who want to live for the Lord, live in a manner that would be right. They take it to the next step. Now, not only are they just doing their own thing, which is in opposition to God's desire or will for their life, but now they're actively scorning God himself. And when we get to a place, even within a society, where laughing at God's standards represents the norm, that's a very dark place for a society to be in. When you're celebrating ungodliness with pride and without shame, that represents a step further than going about it in the secret of the night, but having some sense of shame about it. Not act, actually knowing deep down and being convinced deep down that what you're doing is wrong, but you have some shame about it anyway, where you're not going to openly celebrate it and say, this is something that is cause for being proud about this behavior. But we as a society have moved, definitely moved further in that direction. Now, you can see cycles of some of this throughout human history. I'm not saying this is necessarily unique. But we've come to a place where what is evil is described as good and what is good is described as evil and where there's not even shame about things that used to be done in secret. You can see it, plenty of examples of it. So that's the scornful, the person that is participating in that. So sitting amongst those with that rebellious mindset and accompanying manner of living, it never describes 
the one who is walking by faith, who is being led and directed by God. But it does describe when you're finally sitting amongst those that are scorning God, it does describe the final step of assimilation. That's what Paul is saying when he's saying, as I already quoted earlier in Romans 12 too, that's what being conformed that's what being conformed to the world is like. He's warning against that, but that's what being conformed to the world is like. You're now actively a part of this. You're sitting amongst them while they're doing this. And I think about the slow fade, you know, walking, standing, now sitting in the seat of the scornful. That refers to a natural progression over time. That didn't happen overnight that the man of faith goes from walking, then to standing, and then to sitting amongst those that are openly scorning God's truth. That happens as a process over time. You maybe recall the story of Lot. Righteous Lot. His soul was vexed. Right, Sean? His soul was vexed. Which, which shows that at some points in his life, he was actually upset by the unrighteousness that was all around him. But yet he found himself amongst them. And how did that progression go? Lot, what did he do first? Genesis 13. What did he do first? He looked. He looked toward Sodom. Next step, he pitched his tent toward Sodom, moved in that direction. Last step, he moved into Sodom. Could that describe you? Could that describe the process that the road that you're on right now of gradually moving in a direction that's more and more opposed to the things of faith, more and more accepting of Satan's lies, more and more accepting of the mindset and the thinking and the behavior of the world around you? It doesn't start with one move. It, it's a subtle thing. You can think about that. Another example would be the life of Peter. Not the life of Peter, but this instance after Christ was arrested. How did it go? He followed Christ. He walked. He was walking in a direction with who? A bunch of other people who were caught up in the spectacle of Jesus' arrest. Then what? Then it says in John eighteen eighteen, he was standing amongst those that were outside. What was his next step? Then it says in Luke twenty two fifty five, he was sitting He went from walking to standing to sitting amongst around the fire amongst those that were unbelievers, that were caught up in the spectacle of Jesus' arrest and this phony kangaroo court that he was going through. What happened after that while he was sitting in the seat of the scornful? Next thing you know, he's denying that he even knows Jesus. Doesn't even know who he is. Not once. Not twice. Three times. That's the story of our lives, isn't it? If we're not careful, that we go from walking to standing to sitting in the midst of something that is diametrically opposed to the viewpoint that is found in God's truth. So now come back to the blessed man. That's why the blessed man is, there's such a focus and emphasis that the blessed man, he is somebody that instead of getting sucked into that, that person is renewing his mind by delighting in God's truth by meditating on God's truth. So what does God's definition of a blessed life look like? Let's move through this really quickly. But the verse 3 here now, 
Since the man's being, a man's being is both physical and spiritual, God's blessings extend to the whole person. They can include spiritual blessings, they can include physical blessings, but Psalm 1 is focused on the spiritual side of the equation, and that's ultimately God's primary focus as well. But how is the blessed life described in Psalm 1? Well, this person who is the blessed man, we know he's the blessed man because his life is characterized by delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating in it day and night. But now what does that life look like? Well, he shall be like, it, should, it looks like a tree. The blessed life looks like a tree, and how is that tree described? The tree is planted by the rivers of water. That refers to being rooted and grounded near resources that are necessary for growth or for nourishment, which God continuously provides. That tree is planted by the rivers of water, a reference to God's provision for that person's well-being spiritually and their growth. Now, the believer focused on God and his truth is like a tree that is intentionally planted in a place conductive or conducive, I should say, to growth. He is planted by the rivers of water. It wasn't like an acorn fell down from the tree and randomly landed there. This blessed man is like a tree that has been intentionally planted by the source of nutrients and nourishment for his life, planted by the rivers of water. The believer's spiritual root system draws on the hidden resources he has in Christ, another way of looking at this idea of being planted or fixed or rooted and grounded by the rivers of water. So Colossians 2.7 says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's Paul's prayer for those believers that they would be rooted and grounded, rooted and built up what? In him. That's the reference here. The blessed man is like a tree who is being nourished and built up by proximity to the rivers of water, which is God's provision in his life. Now, that's the same principle that's being taught by Jesus in John 15 as you think about the abide principle, abide in me. Now, we're not going to go there for the sake of time, but most of you are very familiar with it. Without me, you can do nothing, but while you're staying connected to me, allowing me to provide the nourishment that you need for growth, you're going to have fruit in your life. And we see that now with this next phrase here. He's planted by this tree that the blessed man is like. He's planted by the rivers of water, but that blessed man is also going to bring forth fruit in its season. He's like this tree that does that, that brings forth fruit in its season. Now, when a tree consistently receives necessary, necessary nourishment, what happens? It eventually bears fruit. Now, in its season, you have to recognize that that doesn't happen the moment the tree is planted. The tree gets planted in the right place. Where's the right place? By the waters that can give life. Abiding in God and God's provision of nourishment for that person's growth. This all comes back to this intimate, relational God that we have who wants to live life with us. As we're planted, connected, grounded, rooted in Him, then we have this opportunity through the water He provides or the nourishment He provides to grow. As we grow, we bring forth fruit. We bear fruit in John 15. We don't produce this in our lives, but this is a byproduct or this is a description of that blessed life, that life that's spent in intimacy with him. Now, what's the next description of the blessed man? His life or his life, his leaf also does not wither. It's a picture of this ongoing healthiness or of one who is thriving spiritually. Trees that stay connected to the right sources of nutrients, they thrive rather than wither and die. 
What's the alternative to not remaining connected to the source of nourishment that can bring health? It's to wither and die. As you move away from God's truth and you instead walk and then stand and then sit amongst the ungodly, there's no nourishment there. So that that leaf or that tree that is not planted by the rivers of water, but that tree that is now planted amongst the ungodly, they don't thrive. They wither and die. It's a barren wasteland in the world apart from God. It's only in his presence that we can find the nourishment that we need. That's why we're so naive to think that we can move away from him, move away from his plan for our success, which in the context of the church age or his word, fellowship with other believers, being a part of a local church, that we could somehow have this mindset that apart from all of that, in the barren wasteland of the world, that we could somehow still thrive spiritually. And God says, you fool. I know so much more than you do. Won't you just stay connected to me so that your leaf will not wither? And then the last description of the life of the blessed man or the blessed life is whatever he does shall prosper. Now, the prosperity of the man delighting in the Lord is focused primarily on success, of course, from a spiritual perspective. When the believer delights in the Lord, is presently enjoying intimate fellowship with him, is meditating on his truths day and night, is being directed by him, his desires will begin to parallel God's. And when your desires are parallel to God's desires, they will never go unfulfilled. That's what this means. Whatever he does shall prosper. It doesn't mean that he's going to have a life where there's no problems. Jesus tells the followers, in this life you will have tribulations. If you serve me, you will suffer. It's not talking about physical prosperity. It's saying that when I'm walking as directed by him, when I'm delighting in the Lord, when that's true, my goals and objectives are going to be parallel or equal to his. They're going to be directed by him. And when that's true... They will never go unfulfilled, meaning I will always prosper. I will experience prosperity. See, prosperity is another word for it, or another definition of that word even here is just success. Success comes from delighting in the Lord. Life is completely successful is the way you could look at it. So then we think about this, put it all together here. The blessed man, who is that? The blessed man is the man that delights in the Lord. The one who's delighting in the Lord is also delighting in his word. He's meditating, he's muttering God's truth to himself moment by moment, day by day. That's the description of the blessed man. And the question is, does it describe you? Are you presently and practically a blessed man? You are positionally a blessed man. You are positionally a blessed woman if you're a child of God. But are you presently and practically a blessed man? Are you going through life delighting in him and his truth? Are you muttering his truth to yourself? Is your tree planted in the right place such that in season there's fruit? Your leaf's not withering? Whatever you do is prospering? Or are you walking, then standing, and then sitting amongst those who are without God and wondering why you're not prospering? You're not having spiritual success. It's simple, friends. The Word of God sometimes is complicated, but the blessed man, the blessed life, the abundant life is as simple as, am I going to spend it with Him, connected to Him, leaning on Him, tied into Him, focused on Him, led and directed by Him, 
interested in his word, yielded to him, dependent on him to work in and through me? Or am I going to distance myself from him and try to do it or try to do it on my own or seek satisfaction or purpose or blessing and all those things I started off with? I could have come up with a better list of those, but just go Google hashtag blessed and be blown away by the things that the world think represent a blessing in a person's life. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible defines a blessed man very well here in Psalm 1. Hope that was encouraging. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we could spend in these few verses we were able to look at in Psalm 1. Pray that that would be something that would encourage us, remind us to keep our eyes on you. To not take our direction, our wisdom, or our counsel, advice from the world, but to get our direction from you to not try to find nourishment in the world, but to find our nourishment in you. To not seek after and desire the things of the world, the thinking of the world, but that we would find our delight and our joy, the things that we would think deeply about, that we would find those in your truth, in your word. Pray that those would also be the things that we fellowship with one another around instead of wasting our time on things that can't possibly bring life or encouragement or build up or strengthen us in our faith. Thank you for all these things. Pray that you would just convince us that we need to live life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.